History of England, Chapter 7, Part 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter 7, Part 6. The conflict in the royal mind did not escape the eye of Berillon. At the end of January, 1687, he sent a remarkable letter to Versailles. The king, such was the substance of this document, had almost convinced himself that he could not obtain entire liberty for Roman Catholics and yet maintain the laws against Protestant dissenters. He leaned, therefore, to the plan of a general indulgence, but at heart he would be far better pleased if he could, even now, divide his protection and favor between the Church of Rome and the Church of England, to the exclusion of all other religious persuasions. A very few days after this dispatch had been written, James made his first hesitating and ungracious advances towards the Puritans. He had determined to begin with Scotland, where his power to dispense with acts of Parliament had been admitted by the obsequious estates. On the 12th of February, accordingly, was published at Edinburgh a proclamation granting relief to scrupulous consciences. This proclamation fully proves the correctness of Berion's judgment. Even in the very act of making concessions to the Presbyterians, James could not conceal the loathing with which he regarded them. The toleration given to the Catholics was complete. The Quakers had little reason to complain. But the indulgence vouchsafed to the Presbyterians, who constituted the great body of the Scottish people, was clogged by conditions which made it almost worthless. For the old test, which excluded Catholics and Presbyterians alike from office, was substituted a new test, which admitted the Catholics, but excluded most of the Presbyterians. The Catholics were allowed to build chapels, and even to carry the host in procession, anywhere except in the high streets of royal burghs. The Quakers were suffered to assemble in public edifices, but the Presbyterians were interdicted from worshipping God anywhere but in private dwellings. They were not to presume to build meeting-houses. They were not even to use a barn or an outhouse for religious exercises, and it was distinctly notified to them that, if they dared to hold conventicles in the open air, the law, which denounced death against both preachers and hearers, should be enforced without mercy. Any Catholic priest might say Mass, any Quaker might harangue his brethren, but the Privy Council was directed to see that no Presbyterian minister presumed to preach without a special license from the government. Every line of this instrument, and of the letters by which it was accompanied, shows how much it cost the king to relax in the smallest degree the rigor with which he had ever treated the old enemies of his house. There is reason, indeed, to believe that, when he published this proclamation, he had by no means fully made up his mind to a coalition with the Puritans, and that his object was to grant just so much favor to them as might suffice to frighten the churchmen into submission. He therefore waited a month, in order to see what effect the edict put forth at Edinburgh would produce in England. That month he employed assiduously, by Petra's advice, in what was called closeting. London was very full. It was expected that the Parliament would shortly meet for the dispatch of business, and many members were in town. The King set himself to canvass them man by man. He flattered himself that the zealous Tories, and of such with few exceptions the House of Commons consisted, would find it difficult to resist his earnest request addressed to them not collectively but separately, not from the throne but in the familiarity of conversation. The members, therefore, who came to pay their duty at Whitehall were taken aside and honored with long private interviews. The king pressed them, and they were loyal gentlemen, to gratify him in the one thing on which his heart was fixed. 
The question, he said, touched his personal honor. The laws enacted in the late reign by fractious parliaments against the Roman Catholics had really been aimed at himself. Those laws had put a stigma on him, had driven him from the admiralty, had driven him from the council board. He had a right to expect that in the repeal of those laws all who loved and revered him would concur. When he found his hearers obdurate to extortion, he resorted to intimidation and corruption. Those who refused to pleasure him in this matter were plainly told that they must not expect any mark of his favor. Penurious as he was, he opened and distributed his hordes. Several of those who had been invited to confer with him left his bedchamber carrying with them money received from the royal hand. The judges, who were at this time on their spring circuits, were directed by the king to see those members who remained in the country and to ascertain the intentions of each. The result of this investigation was that a great majority of the House of Commons seemed fully determined to oppose the measures of the court. Among those whose firmness excited general admiration was Arthur Herbert, brother of the Chief Justice, member for Dover, master of the robes, and rear admiral of England. Arthur Herbert was much loved by the sailors, and was reputed one of the best of the aristocratical class of naval officers. It had been generally supposed that he would readily comply with the royal wishes, for he was heedless of religion, he was fond of pleasure and expense, he had no private estate, his places brought him in four thousand pounds a year, and he had long been reckoned among the most devoted personal adherents of James. When, however, the rear admiral was closeted and required to promise that he would vote for the repeal of the Test Act, his answer was that his honor and conscience would not permit him to give any such pledge. "'Nobody doubts your honor,' said the king, "'but a man who lives as you do ought not to talk about his conscience.' To this reproach, a reproach which came with a bad grace from the lover of Catherine Sedley, Herbert manfully replied, "'I have my faults, sir, but I could name people who talk much more about conscience than I am in the habit of doing, and yet lead lives as loose as mine.' He was dismissed from all his places, and the account of what he had been dispersed and received as master of the robes was scrutinized with great and, as he complained, with unjust severity. It was now evident that all hopes of an alliance between the churches of England and of Rome, for the purpose of sharing offices and emoluments and of crushing the Puritan sects, must be abandoned. Nothing remained but to try a coalition between the Church of Rome and the Puritan sects against the Church of England. On the 18th of March, the king informed the Privy Council that he had determined to prorogue the Parliament till the end of November and to grant, by his own authority, entire liberty of conscience to all his subjects. On the 4th of April appeared the memorable Declaration of Indulgence. In this declaration, the king avowed that it was his earnest wish to see his people members of that church to which he himself belonged, but, since that could not be, he announced his intention to protect them in the free exercise of their religion. He repeated all those phrases which, eight years before, when he was himself an oppressed man, had been familiar to his lips, but which he had ceased to use from the day on which a turn of fortune had put it into his power to be an oppressor. He had long been convinced, he said, that conscience was not to be forced, that persecution was unfavorable to population and to trade, and that it never attained the ends which persecutors had in view. He repeated his promise, already often repeated and often violated, that he would protect the established church in the enjoyment of her legal rights. He then proceeded to annul, by his own sole authority, a long series of statutes. He suspended all penal laws against all classes of nonconformists. He authorized both Roman Catholics and Protestant dissenters to perform their worship publicly. He forbade his subjects, on pain of his highest displeasure, to molest any religious assembly. 
he also abrogated all those acts which imposed any religious test as a qualification for any civil or military office that the declaration of indulgence was unconstitutional is a point on which both the great english parties have always been entirely agreed every person capable of reasoning on a political question must perceive that a monarch who is competent to issue such a declaration is nothing less than an absolute monarch nor is it possible to urge in defence of this act of james those pleas by which many arbitrary acts of the stuarts have been vindicated or excused it cannot be said that he mistook the bounds of his prerogative because they had not been accurately ascertained for the truth is that he trespassed with a recent landmark full in his view fifteen years before that time a declaration of indulgence had been put forth by his brother with the advice of the cabal that declaration when compared with the declaration of james might be called modest and cautious the declaration of charles dispensed only with penal laws the declaration of james dispensed also with all religious tests the declaration of charles permitted the roman catholics to celebrate their worship in private dwellings only under the declaration of james they might build and decorate temples and even walk in processions along fleet street and with crosses images and censers yet the declaration of charles had been pronounced illegal in the most formal manner the commons had resolved that the king had no powers to dispense with statues in matters ecclesiastical charles had ordered the obnoxious instrument to be cancelled in his presence had torn off the seal with his own hand and had both by message under his sign manual and with his own lips from his throne in full parliament distinctly promised the two houses that the step which had given so much offence should never be drawn into precedent the two houses had then without one dissenting voice joined in thanking him for his compliance with their wishes no constitutional question had ever been decided more deliberately more clearly or with more harmonious consent the defenders of james have frequently pleaded in his excuse the judgment of the court of king's bench on the information collusively laid against sir edward hales but the plea is of no value that judgment james had notoriously obtained by solicitation by threats by dismissing scrupulous magistrates and by placing on the bench other magistrates more courtly and yet that judgment though generally regarded by the bar and by the nation as unconstitutional went only to this extent that the sovereign might for special reasons of state grant to individuals by name exemptions from disabling statutes that he could by one sweeping edict authorize all his subjects to disobey whole volumes of laws no tribunal had ventured in the face of the solemn parliamentary decision of sixteen seventy three to affirm such however was the position of parties that james's declaration of indulgence though the most audacious of all the attacks made by the stuarts on public freedom was well calculated to please that very portion of the community by which all the other attacks of the stuarts on public freedom had been most strenuously resisted it could scarcely be hoped that the protestant nonconformist separated from his countrymen by a harsh code harshly enforced would be inclined to dispute the validity of a decree which relieved him from intolerable grievances a cool and philosophical observer would undoubtedly have proclaimed that all the evil arising from all the intolerant laws which parliaments had framed was not to be compared to the evil which would be produced by a transfer of the legislative power from the parliament to the sovereign but such coolness and philosophy are not to be expected from men who are smarting under present pain and who are tempted by the offer of immediate ease a puritan divine could not indeed deny that the dispensing power now claimed by the crown was inconsistent with the fundamental principles of the constitution but he might perhaps be excused if he asked what was the constitution to him the act of uniformity had ejected him in spite of royal promises from a benefice which was his freehold and had reduced him to beggary and dependence 
the five-mile act had banished him from his dwelling, from his relations, from his friends, from almost all places of public resort. Under the conventicle act his goods had been distrained, and he had been flung into one noisome jail after another among highwaymen and housebreakers. Out of prison he had constantly had the officers of justice on his track. He had been forced to pay hush money to informers. He had stolen, in ignominious disguises, through windows and trap-doors to meet his flock, and had, while pouring the baptismal water or distributing the Eucharistic bread, been anxiously listening for the signal that the tipstaves were approaching. Was it not mockery to call a man thus plundered and oppressed to suffer martyrdom for the property and liberty of his plunderers and his oppressors? The declaration, despotic as it might seem to his prosperous neighbors, brought deliverance to him. He was called upon to make his choice, not between freedom and slavery, but between two yokes, and he might not unnaturally think the yoke of the king lighter than that of the church. While thoughts like these were working in the minds of many dissenters, the Anglican party was in amazement and terror. This new turn in affairs was indeed alarming. The House of Stuart, leagued with Republican and regicide sects against the old Cavaliers of England, Popery leagued with Puritanism against an ecclesiastical system with which the Puritans had no quarrel, except that it had retained too much that was popish. These were portents which confounded all the calculations of statesmen. The church was then to be attacked at once on every side, and the attack was to be under the direction of him who, by her constitution, was her head. She might well be struck with surprise and dismay, and mingled with surprise and dismay came other bitter feelings resentment against the perjured prince whom she had served too well, and remorse for the cruelties in which he had been her accomplice, and for which he was now, as it seemed, about to be her punisher. Her chastisement was just. She reaped that which she had sown. After the restoration, when her power was at the height, she had breathed nothing but vengeance. She had encouraged, urged, almost compelled the Stuarts to requite with perfidious ingratitude the recent services of the Presbyterians. Had she, in that season of her prosperity, pleaded, as became her, for her enemies, she might now, in her distress, have found them her friends. Perhaps it was not yet too late. Perhaps she might still be able to turn the tactics of her faithless oppressor against himself. There was among the Anglican clergy a moderate party which had always felt kindly towards the Protestant dissenters. That party was not large, but the abilities, acquirements, and virtues of those who belonged to it made it respectable. It had been regarded with little favor by the highest ecclesiastical dignitaries, and had been mercilessly reviled by bigots of the school of Laud, but, from the day on which the Declaration of Indulgence appeared to the day on which the power of James ceased to inspire terror, the whole church seemed to be animated by the spirit and guided by the counsels of the calumniated latitudinarians. Then followed an auction, the strangest that history has recorded. On one side the king, on the other the church, began to bid eagerly against each other for the favor of those whom tipped to that time king and church had combined to oppress. The Protestant dissenters who, a few months before, had been a despised and proscribed class, now held the balance of power. The harshness with which they had been treated was universally condemned. The court tried to throw all blame on the hierarchy. The hierarchy flung it back on the court. The king declared that he had unwillingly persecuted the separatists only because his affairs had been in such a state that he could not venture to disoblige the established clergy. The established clergy protested that they had borne a part in severity uncongenial to their feelings only from deference to the authority of the king. The king got together a collection of stories about rectors and vicars who had by threats of prosecution wrung money out of the Protestant dissenters. 
He talked on this subject much and publicly, threatened to institute an inquiry which would exhibit the Parsons in their true character to the whole world, and actually issued several commissions empowering agents on whom he thought that he could depend to ascertain the amount of the sums extorted in different parts of the country by professors of the dominant religion from sectaries. The advocates of the church, on the other hand, cited instances of honest parish priests who had been reprimanded and menaced by the court for recommending toleration in the pulpit and for refusing to spy out and hunt down little congregations of nonconformists. The king asserted that some of the churchmen whom he had closeted had offered to make large concessions to the Catholics, on condition that the persecution of the Puritans might go on. The accused churchmen vehemently denied the truth of this charge, and alleged that, if they would have complied with what he demanded for his own religion, he would most gladly have suffered them to indemnify themselves by harassing and pillaging Protestant dissenters. The court had changed its face. The scarf and cassock could hardly appear there without calling forth sneers and malicious whispers. Maids of honor forbore to giggle, and lords of the bedchamber bowed low when the puritanical visage and the puritanical garb, so long the favorite subjects of mockery in fashionable circles, were seen in the galleries. Taunton, which had been during two generations the stronghold of the roundhead party in the West, which had twice resolutely repelled the armies of Charles I, which had risen in one man to support Monmouth, and which had been turned into a shambles by Kirk and Jeffreys, seemed to have suddenly succeeded to the place which Oxford had once occupied in the royal favor. The king constrained himself to show even fawning courtesy to eminent dissenters. To some he offered money to some municipal honors, to some pardons for their relations and friends who, having been implicated in the Rye House plot, or having joined the standard of Monmouth, were now wandering on the continent or toiling among the sugar-canes of Barbados. He affected even to sympathize with the kindness which the English Puritans felt for their foreign brethren. A second and a third proclamation were published at Edinburgh, which greatly extended the nugatory toleration granted to the Presbyterians by the Edict of February. The banished Huguenots, on whom the king had frowned during many months, and whom he had defrauded of the alms contributed by the nation, were now relieved and caressed. An order in council was issued, appealing again in their behalf to the public liberality. The rule, which required them to qualify themselves for the receipt of charity by conforming to the Anglican worship, seems to have been at this time silently abrogated, and the defenders of the king's policy had the effrontery to affirm that this rule, which, as we know from the best evidence, was really devised by himself in concert with Barillon, had been adopted at the instance of the prelates of the established church. While the king was thus courting his old adversaries, the friends of the church were not less active. If the acrimony and scorn with which prelates and priests had, since the Restoration, been in the habit of treating the sectaries, scarcely a trace was discernible. Those who had lately been designated as schismatics and fanatics were now dear fellow Protestants, weak brethren it might be, but still brethren, whose scruples were entitled to tender regard. If they would but be true at this crisis to the cause of the English Constitution and of the Reformed religion, their generosity should be speedily and largely rewarded instead of an indulgence which was of no legal validity a real indulgence secured by act of parliament nay many churchmen who had hitherto been distinguished by their inflexible attachment to every gesture and every word prescribed in the book of common prayer now declared themselves favorable not only to toleration but even to comprehension the dispute they said about surplices and attitudes had too long divided those who were agreed as to the essentials of religion when the struggle for life and death against the common enemy was over, it would be found that the Anglican clergy would be ready to make every fair concession. If the dissenters would demand only what was reasonable, 
not only civil but ecclesiastical dignities would be open to them and baxter and howe would be able without any stain on their honour or their conscience to sit on the episcopal bench of the numerous pamphlets in which the cause of the court and the cause of the church were at this time eagerly and anxiously pleaded before the puritan now by a strange turn of fortune the arbiter of the fate of his persecutors one only is still remembered the letter to the dissenter in this masterly little tract all the arguments which could convince a nonconformist that it was his duty and his interest to prefer an alliance with the church to an alliance with the court were condensed into the smallest compass arranged in the most perspicuous order illustrated with lively wit and enforced by an eloquence earnest indeed yet never in its utmost vehemence transgressing the limits of exact good sense and good breeding the effect of this paper was immense for as it was only a single sheet more than twenty thousand copies were circulated by the post and there was no corner of the kingdom in which the effect was not felt twenty-four answers were published but the town pronounced that they were all bad and that lestrange's was the worst of the twenty-four the government was greatly irritated and spared no pains to discover the author of the letter but it was found impossible to procure legal evidence against him some imagined that they recognized the sentiments and diction of temple but in truth that amplitude and acuteness of intellect that vivacity of fancy that terse and energetic style that placid dignity half courtly half philosophical which the utmost excitement of conflict could not for a moment derange belonged to halifax and to halifax alone the dissenters wavered nor is it any reproach to them that they did so they were suffering and the king had given them relief some eminent pastors had emerged from confinement others had ventured to return from exile congregations which had hitherto met only by stealth and in darkness now assembled at noonday and sang psalms aloud in the hearing of magistrates churchwardens and constables modest buildings for the worship of god after the puritan fashion began to rise all over england one observant traveller will still remark the date of sixteen eighty seven on some of the oldest meeting-houses nevertheless the offers of the church were to a prudent dissenter far more attractive than those of the king the declaration was in the eye of the law a nullity it suspended the penal statutes against nonconformity only for so long a time as the fundamental principles of the constitution and the rightful authority of the legislature should remain suspended what was the value of privileges which must be held by a tenure at once so ignominious and so insecure there might soon be a demise of the crown a sovereign attached to the established religion might sit on the throne parliament composed of churchmen might be assembled how deplorable would then be the situation of dissenters who had been in league with the jesuits against the constitution the church offered an indulgence very different from that granted by james an indulgence as valid and as sacred as the great charter both the contending parties promised religious liberty to the separatist but one party required him to purchase it by sacrificing civil liberty the other party invited him to enjoy civil and religious liberty together for these reasons even if it could be believed that the court was sincere a dissenter might reasonably have determined to cast his lot with the church but what guarantee was there for the sincerity of the court all men knew what the conduct of james had been tipped to that very time it was not impossible indeed that a persecutor might be convinced by argument and by experience of the advantages of toleration but james did not pretend to have been recently convinced on the contrary he omitted no opportunity of protesting that he had during many years been on principle adverse to all intolerance yet within a few months he had persecuted men women young girls to the death of their religion had he been acting against light and against the conviction of his conscience then or was he uttering a deliberate falsehood now from this dilemma there was no escape and either of the two suppositions was fatal to the king's character for honesty 
It was notorious also that he had been completely subjugated by the Jesuits. Only a few days before the publication of the indulgence, that order had been honored, in spite of the well-known wishes of the Holy See, with a new mark of his confidence and approbation. His confessor, Father Mansueti, a Franciscan, whose mild temper and irreproachable life commanded general respect, but who had long been hated by Tyrconnell and Petra, had been discarded. The vacant place had been filled by an Englishman named Warner, who had apostatized from the religion of his country and had turned Jesuit. To the moderate Roman Catholics and to the nuncio this change was far from agreeable. By every Protestant it was regarded as a proof that the dominion of the Jesuits over the royal mind was absolute. Whatever praises those fathers might justly claim, flattery itself could not ascribe to them either wide liberality or strict veracity that they had never scrupled, when the interest of their own order was at stake, to call in the aid of the civil sword, or to violate the laws of truth and of good faith, had been proclaimed to the world, not only by Protestant accusers, but by men whose virtue and genius were the glory of the Church of Rome. It was incredible that a devoted disciple of the Jesuits should be on principle zealous for the freedom of conscience, but it was neither incredible nor improbable that he might think himself justified in disguising his real sentiments in order to render a service to his religion. It was certain that the king at heart preferred the churchmen to the Puritans. It was certain that, while he had any hope of gaining the churchmen, he had never shown the smallest kindness to the Puritans. Could it be then doubted that, if the churchmen would even now comply with his wishes, he would willingly sacrifice the Puritans? His word, repeatedly pledged, had not restrained him from invading the legal rights of that clergy which had given such signal proofs of affection and fidelity to his house. What security, then, could his word afford to sects divided from him by the recollection of a thousand inexpial wounds inflicted and endured? When the first agitation produced by the publication of the indulgence had subsided, it appeared that a breach had taken place in the Puritan party. The minority, headed by a few busy men whose judgment was defective or was biased by interest, supported the king. Henry Kerr, who had long been the bitterest and most active pamphleteer among the nonconformists, and who had, in the days of the popish plot, assailed James with the utmost fury in a weekly journal entitled The Packet of Advice from Rome, was now as loud in adulation as he had formerly been in calumny and insult. The chief agent who was employed by the government to manage the Presbyterians was Vincent Alsop a divine of some note both as a preacher and as a writer. His son, who had incurred the penalties of treason, received a pardon, and the whole influence of the father was thus engaged on the side of the court. With Alsop was joined Thomas Rosewell. Rosewell had, during the persecution of the dissenters which followed the detection of the Rye House plot, been falsely accused of preaching against the government, had been tried for his life by Jeffreys, and had, in defiance of the clearest evidence, been convicted by a packed jury. The injustice of the verdict was so gross that the very courtiers cried shame. One Tory gentleman who had heard the trial went instantly to Charles and declared that the neck of the most loyal subject in England would not be safe if Rosewell suffered. The jurymen themselves were stung by remorse when they thought over what they had done and exerted themselves to save the life of the prisoner. At length the pardon was granted, but Rosewell remained bound under heavy recognizances to good behavior during life and to periodical appearance in the court of the king's bench. His recognizances were now discharged by the royal command, and in this way his services were secured. The business of gaining the independence was principally entrusted to one of their ministers named Stephen Lobb. Lobb was a weak, violent, and ambitious man. He had gone such lengths in opposition to the government that he had been by name proscribed in several proclamations. He now made his peace, and went as far in servility as he had ever done in faction. 
he joined the jesuitical cabal and eagerly recommended measures from which the wisest and most honest roman catholics recoiled it was remarked that he was constantly at the palace and frequently in the closet that he lived with a splendour to which the puritan divines were little accustomed and that he was perpetually surrounded by suitors employing his interest to procure them offices or pardons with law was closely connected william penn penn had never been a strong-headed man the life which he had been leading during two years had not a little impaired his moral sensibility and if his conscience ever reproached him he comforted himself by repeating that he had a good and noble end in view and that he was not paid for his services in money by the influence of these men and of others less conspicuous addresses of thanks to the king were procured from several bodies of dissenters tory writers have with justice remarked that the language of these compositions was as fulsomely servile as anything that could be found in the most florid eulogies pronounced by bishops on the stuarts but on close inquiry it will appear that the disgrace belongs to but a small part of the puritan party there was scarcely a market-town in england without at least a knot of separatists no exertion was spared to induce them to express their gratitude for the indulgence circular letters imploring them to sign were sent to every corner of the kingdom in such numbers that the mail-bags it was sportively said were too heavy for the post-horses yet all the addresses which could be obtained from all the presbyterians independents and baptists scattered over england did not in six months amount to sixty nor was there any reason to believe that these addresses were numerously signed End of part six.